Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi, everyone. We're delighted to have Dr. Milo Jones on the pod this week. Throughout his career, Milo has worn many hats, having served in the US Marines, been a stockbroker, a consultant, an archeologist, and more recently, an author, professor, and research fellow. In addition to his interest in value investing, he is also an expert in the ways in which social and cultural bias can affect decision-making and the importance of cognitive diversity in a team. He explores this in depth through the lens of intelligence in his recent book, Constructing Cassandra, Reframing Intelligence Failure at the CIA, 1947-2001. Juan and I enjoyed chatting with Milo about his books as well as his participants in a super forecasting tournament. Enjoy. Well, Myla, thank you so much for joining us on the TVP podcast. We're really excited to to have you here today, uh, especially because you're you're an expert in one of Juan and I's uh, pet topics, actually. Um, If listeners haven't figured out from previous episodes yet, Juan and I are not British, uh, but we happen to work for a British company that's headquartered in London. And uh, on occasion, on the side of the desk, we we kind of look at each other and go, what are these people? What is happening? Just by uh, being co-foreigners and and uh, we also kind of talk about the fact that not growing up in England has, has given us what we consider slight advantages or just a slightly different perspective and way in which we approach different problems and make different decisions. Um, and so when we found you, we were delighted because this is something that, that you've written about extensively, less so probably in the investing world, but certainly in, uh, in international relationships and geopolitics. And so we're, we're delighted to, to have you on. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here and very grateful for the opportunity. Uh, just for our listeners' uh, sake, uh, would you be able to give us a bit of your background and uh, an insight into your work? Sure. Uh, i from New York City originally, but then I spent time in Wisconsin, and then I was sent away to boarding school in Virginia at age 14, and that was all boys. So when I got to Northwestern, I, I chose art history as a major just to give my, I understood the idea of comparative advantage early on. Um, there were a lot more girls than, than boys in, in the art history department. And I knew I'd be going straight into the Marine Corps following the, uh, the degree. So the Marine Corps didn't frankly care what degree you got. So I studied what interested me, um, which was art and, and frankly girls. But um, when I finished that, as I said, I, I went in uh, to the Marine Corps. All U.S. Marine officers first start life as infantry officers at a place called the Basic School. I did that, and then they decided to make me a communications officer, which in British terms would be a signals officer. And uh, I served for four years, the best four years of my life doing that, although I didn't realize at the time. 
tried life as an archaeologist for about a year or two. And then I had a revelation, moved back to New York, married the wrong woman, and become a banker. So I did that, or a stockbroker anyway. Worked for Morgan Stanley Dean Witter for a couple of years. Great firm, but decided I needed a change. And I did London Business School. From London Business School, I went on to work for the UK office of Accenture. And then I decided let's join a dot-com startup at a disastrous moment um, when we failed to raise our third round of venture capital. So I went back to consulting, but partly as a result of 9-11 and partly as a result of my own instincts. Um, I was drawn back to international relations and security stuff. So I did a master's and then a PhD in international relations in Brussels. And my work there focused on the internal culture and identity of the CIA and how your identity and culture affects analysis uh, in the broadest possible terms. These days, what do I do? I teach at IE Business School in Madrid. I teach at Imperial College London. And um, I'm a visiting or rather a research fellow at a place called the Center for the Changing Character of War at Pembroke College, Oxford. Uh, and for reasons very complex to explain, well, let's leave it at second marriage. I live in Warsaw when I'm not doing those things. That's a very long-winded version of, of uh, a quite chaotic past. That's a fascinating that's actually, a, I would say that's a, actually a fascinating journey. Um, and you have left out from that, uh, the summary of your career, the fact that you are the author of a book called Constructing Cassandra, Reframing Intelligence Failure at the CIA. Can you just give sure. me what, uh, what, what I, we, we will, we will uh, touch upon the book uh, uh, during the session? Sure, I'm happy to. In fact, that book was the outgrowth of my uh, PhD dissertation, in fact. But Stanford University Press, that published the book, doesn't like to say we're doing we're publishing your PhD. And I was so sick of some of the material when I finished. Um, I said I'm never going to publish this. And a good friend of mine said you've got to publish this. And I said, well, you're a real academic. You need the publication. If you'll help me edit it, you can be a co-author. And he said, great. So uh, it's probably my, my, and he'd be the first to admit it. He's a brilliant professor of entrepreneurship uh, in France, Philippe Silberzant. But essentially what, what the book is, is uh, my PhD dissertation with uh, a, a friend kindly said, well, the seams are still showing. It, it reads like a very dry British academic text. Uh, and they made me take out all the fun textual footnotes. You can always tell when someone's bored writing a PhD because they go off on these tangents in the footnotes. And I, I did a lot of that. So, <laughs> um, the, the other thing that you have left out from your bio is the fact that you are very keen to value investing. Um, and we, we, we actually met through a friend we have in common uh, who is a value investor himself and you you attend value investor conferences and I think that you've been at the uh, uh, the guy hands no um, guy spear guy spear uh, uh, but, but I also I have a mentor who, who 
is to always nameless, uh, who's about 20 years my senior. And when I was at, still at London Business School, he was always already pointing me towards value investing. It's not something that I, I would say most American stockbrokers are trained in. You're not trained away from it, but but efficient market theory in the 90s was 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 taken seriously. And um, you weren't pushed towards value. But but my mentor at one point, when I was an MBA full of myself, pointed out that, you know, it's very important to distinguish price, cost, and value. <laughs> and that turns out to be um, something that uh, I found to be increasingly true. So about the same period where I'm doing my PhD, I, I stumble upon value investing and the theories of value investing just in time. Um, if I'd found it earlier, maybe I wouldn't have jumped off the high jump to that dot-com startup um, with no <laughs> revenue. But, but uh, better late than never, as in many aspects of my life. So yes, I, I, I um, spend a lot of time thinking about value investing, teaching. When I teach investing, I essentially teach value investing. And uh, I teach in both the master's in finance program and uh, the MBA program at IE. And the, the value component can make for a difficult marriage because what I'm teaching is actually either geopolitics and investing or intelligence tools for the finance professional that includes investing. And people tend to think of value investing as starting very bottom up. And you're not thinking about big picture things like uh, geopolitics. But I believe there are a lot of geopolitical assumptions frequently embedded in a value approach. And it's important to at least recognize and explore those and make them explicit. And that's what I try to do. So yes, there's a reason I'm on this value podcast. Besides <laughs> my good looks that no one can see on the, on the podcast. That's really interesting. Um, and we will definitely touch upon many of those different tools um, from the intelligence CIA side that you have explored so much in, in, in your past and also from a, from a geopolitical perspective. But before we, we go into that, uh, one of the things that we previously discussed in our first conversation is the fact that usually decision-making analysis is approached from a psychological behavioral point of view. But you made the point back then that people tend to forget that, sociolo that the sociologist angle of it, uh, which is quite important. So how do we all get shaped by the environment in which we all grew up or the environment in which we currently operate? And how does that have an impact in the way not only we perceive the world, but make decisions? Uh, perfect question. And it actually links to my PhD because I, my, my PhD was not a gotcha. How could you be so stupid? Strategic surprises are easy to prevent. Intelligence failures are easy to prevent, present. And the psychologists focusing on bias have it all wrong. Not at all. It was designed to be a sort of yes and approach to say understanding bias is important. But while doing that, before doing that, you also need to think about how the decision-making environment itself is being structured. And it's being structured in ways large and small. Uh, so for example, 
when you're thinking about wh whether it's a, an investment advisor or an intelligence agency, there's a self-selection process that takes place. Who decides they want to be in that business? And that brings with it certain points of view uh, that sometimes are helpful and sometimes are not helpful. And then, of course, once you decide, I want to work in that industry or I want to work for that agency, there's an active selection process where they say, well, you're the type of person we want or you're the kind of person we don't want. And that's another layer that shapes the analytic environment. And then, of course, there's the formal training and the sort of wisdom, what passes for the way we do things around here, what is called corporate culture. And that introduces both insights and blinders. And then to a great degree, and this is probably the part of my book that many people in the intelligence community disagreed with, I talk about mirror imaging, and I think it happens in the investment world too. So let me explain what it is. Usually in the intelligence world, mirror imaging is where you assume that the enemy shares your point of view, or you begin to assume your opponent's point of view. I said, that's true, but you also begin to assume that your intelligence customer or your investing customer has, is asking the right question. And therefore you start mirror imaging, not only the intelligence target, but also the intelligence consumer. And you as an investment, as an investor or an investment advisor, begin to pay more attention to things people are asking about. And on the one hand, that's good. But on the other hand, when you look back at surprises, mistakes, and oversights, you frequently can point towards the idea that you were not as attentive to things that weren't interesting to your information consumer as maybe you should have been. So this isn't a, a, a gotcha style, you idiots don't do this. It's just designed to at least diagnose how mistakes happen. And so the overall decision-making environment starts with self-selection of the people working on this question, then active selection of who's hiring them, then the corporate culture they're working in, and then the customers they're serving. Very long answer. But that's my best shot at answering your question. Could one make the point that actually things even start way before that person joins X or Y team, as in you are the product of the environment in which you grew up? So in my case, being Colombian, or in your case, being American, I live in London, you live in Warsaw, the way that you are looking at the world the way that you're understanding the current conflict, the different risks that might entail, or in my case, living in a city like London versus living in a city like Bogotá, the different risks, it's very different because of the environment in which I, I grew up or you grew up. Is that, would that be a correct assumption? Uh, yes, and, and so the next layer or, or, or another layer is something as simple, I'll get to nationality in a minute, but start with language. Uh, one of the things that people who don't speak foreign languages miss is how many assumptions and traps and biases are embedded 
even in things as simple as place names or verbs or let me give you an example from uh, my book. When Osama bin Laden declared war on the United States, he did it by fax, okay, to newspapers in, I believe, 1997 and 1998. And they were Arab-language newspapers, Arabic newspapers in London. And he did it through poetry. And he wrote a, a, a poem to the American uh, Secretary of Defense, William Cohen. Oh, William, even now our war camels are crossing the desert to your doom and stuff. And if you're an American, that just seems weird, right? I mean, not even old fashioned, just bizarre. In fact, at CIA, the, the, they have these groups sort of poets and quants as analytic groups, you know, guess who gets taken more seriously most of the time, right? Not the poets. Uh, so the, the softer side gets ignored. But if you understand the culture of um, the Arabic language and, and the Quran and Islam, you realize that actually poetry is frequently reserved for expressing the highest emotions, the most important things, the best, uh, things that really, really matter to you. So, exactly the message that would resonate most with bin laden's audience or the, the the media that would resonate most with bin laden's audience was one of the things that made people kind of say oh boy yeah that whack job he's faxing us poetry declaring war on us and of course you can you can sort of know that if you know something about the culture but nothing beats actually speaking the language, being embedded in the culture and understanding how many biases get built in to simply things as simple as language and culture and stuff that you really only learn in novels or around dinner tables or at weddings and funerals, um, so to speak. That's really interesting. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you participated in some of the first rounds of the Super Forecasters experiment. Is that correct? I did. Uh, so they were run through something called IARPA, which is the intelligence community's version of DARPA. So the Intelligence Advanced Research Project Activity instead of the Defense Research Project Agency. But it was designed to do the same thing, right? Let's do moonshots. Uh, take some big risks with a little bit of investment to get a big return for the intelligence community um, instead of the Defense Department in darkest days. So IARPA did this with Philip Tetlock. Uh, and I happened to, uh, to participate in that. And, and uh, I only participated in a few rounds because I am not a super forecaster. <laughs> Very early on, people like me were excluded because I, <laughs> it turns out I'm terrible at this stuff. And what was interesting is I, having then read the research, I now understand why I'm a terrible super forecaster. And if any of your listeners have not read super forecasting, you really should, because one of the big messages of the book, and it's even true, is that super forecasting is a skill that can be learned. Some people come at it at a certain temperament health. 
but you can get better at this stuff through understanding yourself and the world better. Uh, and so, yes, I, I participated in that. And if I may say, I then um, read more of the research, taught it, attended more classes, and then went to IARPA to complain <laughs> about, here's what I think you've got right, and here's what I think you've got wrong. And if you'd like to hear what I complained about, I'm happy to talk about that. When I was about to join my current team, um, I had some garden lifts, and I emailed one of the co-watch in my team, whose name is Kevin Murphy. And I said, look, I have all of this uh, time uh, before I joined the team. Uh, why, would, why don't you send me stuff for me to read? I would like to read as much as possible and take, make the most out of the time that I have before uh, I joined the team. And the one book that he sent, and this was more than five years ago, was Super Forecasters by Philip Detlock, uh, yeah. which I a really, really interesting book. So I, I am curious from your experience, um, what was it that made you a poor super forecaster? Well, it really is um, super forecasters. It's not an IQ test. It's, it's more of a, 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 it's like so many things in life. It's a character test, not an intelligence test. And good super forecaster is about how you think. It's a style of thinking, not an intelligence question. Good super forecasters are actively open-minded. You'll be shocked to learn this, but the type of guy who first studies Russian in high school, takes more Russian in college, and joins the, the US Marine Corps right out of college is, is probably have many virtues, but is not actively open-minded. <laughs> I'm pretty committed to to stuff. And super forecasters are really about ideas. All ideas are hypotheses to be tested, not treasures to be protected. So I, I go at problems thinking I know with, with let's say, a very, pretty strong moral commitment. And then there's the issue that good super forecasters, not only are they actively open-minded, they're intellectually humble. Oh my goodness. I'm, a, I, I'm an academic, but, but also a Marine. So I, you know, humility, sorry, not, not so good at that. Um, they're also, they tend to be numerate by instinct. And I can't say that that, you know, I'm not numerate by instinct. I, I can add, divide, subtract, and multiply, but, but uh, I don't think in calculus. Um, they also tend to be pretty good at, updating things in a, a thoughtful way. And I tend to go from ditch to ditch, quite binary in my thinking. Um, so all of these things that once you realize them about yourself, you can check and improve. And also some of the structured analytic techniques, particularly for teams that are led by people like me who do not naturally come at forecasting as a personality type, they can, you, you can create an environment using uh, structured analytic techniques that really help you and your team overcome some of the worst sins that kept me out of the super forecasting category. 
Yeah, I do remember when reading the book that one of the things that struck me the most is the fact that the people that did very well were very much on top of on top of what was happening, and they were able to incorporate new information and change tracks very fast. And the other thing that came across, but you will correct me if I'm wrong, is the fact that they do tend to think in a range of possible outcomes, and they do tend to incorporate probabilistic thinking into it. Yeah, they're they're not super black and white people, uh, in in the sense of philosophically, but. I would remind you that many of these characteristics about being slow and cautious and humble and a thoughtful updater and quite numerate and so on, they actually run quite counter to many of the qualities we look for in our leaders. And what some of the things that, that lead you to the top of organizations, uh, in fact, run counter to your ability to see the future clearly. And so I think there are interesting questions about organizational design. As we learn more about what sort of people should we be listening to when trying to project the future, and then how do we convey that to a workforce or how do we lead companies and agencies uh, if, if these type of people may not be the most charismatic, if I may say. Not, I'm look, I'm sure there, I know some people who are true super forecasters who are genuinely charismatic, but I'm just dealing in, I'm dealing in uh, stereotypes here. Um, I, I would say that the, one of the best super forecasters of the last century is Warren Buffett, who happens to be, or appears to be very charismatic. That's absolutely true. Um, but some of his charisma, you'll note, is built around an aw shucks, gee, uh, I guess I'm just a simple guy from, from Nebraska. But so, so there are elements of, of intellectual humility, even though you know, he and Charlie uh, are, are definitely, obviously, sharp as wits. But again, super forecasting is not an intelligence thing. It, it is very much a, a disposition question. And I think in the, one of the things that really comes out of the, the literature on value investing is that too is, is not an IQ test. It's a disposition question. It's a willingness to question yourself. It's a willing to at times swim against the tide. Uh, you know, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. It, uh, it requires a, a contrarian streak and a willingness to look for ideas maybe where other people don't and so on and so forth. It's not, it's, not, it's not completely incompatible, but I agree. Both Buffett and, and Charlie are uh, enormously charismatic. So they're the exceptions that prove the rule. <laughs> uh, that reminds me of, of something I did want to ask you uh, from, from your book, and that was the concept of essentially of, of cognitive diversity and a lack of it causing quite some issues. Your book uh, follows intelligence in the CIA from 1947 to 2001. So anybody with a, a cursory knowledge of American history is chock full of events that could be examined and seeing if they went well or when they went wrong. And you say some of it was essentially down to assigning the wrong people to solve 
a set of problems and then causing a cascade of, of either geopolitical policy or, or people issues. Do you have any examples that, that you would like to highlight personally or any ways, I mean, because hindsight's 2020, uh, have there been changes into the way in which they approach cognitive diversity within the intelligence community? Two, two, well, there are a couple of questions there. And, and yes, um, first of all, it, it's very hard to use uh, other categories as, as perfect proxies for cognitive diversity. That, that you can't just say, because an organization is 98% male, that there will be no cog cognitive diversity. And I'm not saying the CIA was 98% male. A lot of those statistics are, in fact, classified. But like, remember, intelligence communities and businesses re often reflect the society that they're born in and work for and work in. And again and again, for example, um, I, I appeared to find evidence that something as simple as not having a balance, an equal balance of men and women when analyzing the Soviet economy led them to emphasize some issues and de-emphasize others in ways that over time skewed uh, an understanding rather than enhanced understanding of the Soviet economy. You can also say things like, again, back to prior to 9-11, um, the CIA has not revealed what percentage of uh, the bin Laden unit was Islamic <laughs> uh, or even spoke Arabic, please note. So that actually comes back to an earlier point one asked about. One of the disadvantages that America currently has is the worldwide proliferation of English. We go to foreign countries and we show up and we get into conversations with people we meet who also speak English. And even if these people are trying to give us a representative view of their country, they're going to be a tiny slice of the more educated or the more favorable to the West or other things. And if you really want to understand the country, you have got to learn their language and get down into the second tier cities and meet the whatever the foreign equivalent, whoever the foreign equivalent of Joe Sixpack is. And that person is not going to speak English. So something as simple as, wow, uh, Americans really don't do foreign languages, but that's okay. Everybody speaks English. That introduces biases and blind spots and real problems. Uh, I know Edward Lipback went to the CIA last year, or I'm told he went to the CIA last year, walked into the Middle East Division and said, well, you're the Middle East Division. Why don't I do my talk in Arabic instead of English? Or I could do Hebrew. And they explained, well, if you do it in Arabic, the vast majority of people in this room won't understand what you're saying. To which he responded, yeah, exactly. You claim to be experts in a region where you can't read the daily paper without Google Translate or without a translation service, and therefore you're missing key elements. Um, but of course, as we've seen most recently 
in what appears to be Vladimir Putin's disastrous misunderstanding of Ukraine, speaking the foreign language, the same language, but doesn't make you immune from some enormous misjudgments about culture and culture change and, and uh, things like that. So again, I'm not saying anyone has an easy job. Uh, there was another part of your question. Have they learned? I mean, if you're, if you're oh, using examples uh, now of saying, we're, yeah. we're still not speaking Arabic in our Middle East division, maybe maybe that was a bit optimistic saying if uh, encounters well, in the 60s reflect a better version of uh, the intelligence community in the modern day. Well, there, there is a, it goes deeper. There, Harvard did a conference last year on diversity in the intelligence community. And that was diversity defined how? It was diversity defined as Congress wants the intelligence community to define it. How many gays have you got? How many transgender people have you got? How many, how many of this category and that category? And I'm not saying that those aren't important, but I am saying that is a uniquely way of thinking about diversity. And that's not the type of cognitive diversity necessarily that helps us understand the 96% of the world's population that isn't American and doesn't have over 22% of the world's wealth. We, uh, you know, Americans live in a country where something like 92% of people below the poverty line own at least one air conditioner. Now, I am not saying they have great lives, but I am saying when you're in a country where the poor people are fat and own air conditioners, by global standards, they're not really poor. And it's really hard to go out and try to understand the world. You know, we're, we're the country that spends hundreds of millions of dollars on Halloween costumes for pets. We, we are not going to have an easy time understanding what poverty really means to people in Lagos or Bogota. Yeah, there was, um, we had that side this on the, about, about a year ago. And when discussing, discussing the, um, the topic of cognitive diversity, he was making the point that people tend to associate diversity in the context of group dynamics by having uh, people that fall into certain categories. But that's not where it's important. That's not what will bring the most out of or the most powerful side of the diversity angle. What you need to look for is people that actually think different from the rest of the group, which is it's, it's actually something that you have said in the past. I think that you've mentioned in the past that if you want to be or one of the, you, you need to, I think that, yeah, you, you qualified that you, you need to embrace those people that will genuinely think different. And those are by default very difficult to characterize. Not only that, they can also just be difficult people. Let's face it. Um, there was a saying at the CIA, mindset works wonders to get the product out in between disasters. That on the one hand, when you're just, when you're an analytic team and you're, look, you've got a deadline. You've got, you've got a job to do. People who are doing the whataboutism or saying, well, actually, you're not, you're not fully understanding the nuance of this question, or have you looked at this? It, a highly cognitive diverse team is not necessarily on the face of it an efficient team, an efficient team. 
Um, and so somehow as an organization, you have to strike a balance between having genuinely diverse analytic teams and at the same time um, producing analytic products. And frequently, in we know the way organizations work, the drive for efficiency strips out certain types of people. And of course, um, it, it's not only in the intelligence community or in, in uh, an investment community. At one point, the New York Times was going through various spasms a couple of years ago, and they decided that I believe their employees voted that the goal of the New York Times should be to ensure that the workforce of the New York Times fully reflected the diversity of the city that it's reporting on. That sounds good, right? But then someone pointed out that about one in seven New Yorkers are functionally illiterate. Do you want functionally illiterate people working for the New York Times? I don't know. So these, these are hard questions to solve, but some of what I was trying to do in the book, and I would suggest it's healthy for all organizations, is to at least recognize and, and understand the bias that is inherent in their individual and corporate identity and culture and when and how you can keep it diverse tolerate diversity and and demand it under some circumstances when you're not under time pressure but it's a high bar it's hard to do yeah because i guess one, one one of the things about cognitive diversity is it doesn't lend itself well to, to a hr brochure <laughs> it doesn't always, uh, you can't go on the front of a, uh, of a hard, university website. Can you? Yes, exactly. I guess and also the ways it, 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 discussing it makes us more aware of it, but I guess it's wondering how do we introduce it to, to a corporate level other than uh, we, we find it in the working teams, but I think it's part, partly a bit harder to, to I guess, assess it in someone during an interview process or when creating a team to work on a certain project. Uh, is, is there ways that we can encourage identification of it that, that's better used in, in team building? Yes, and by the way, the intelligence, the intelligence community has taken this seriously that I know of at least three Western European intelligence agencies that have uh, hired uh, autistic people to do certain types of pattern recognition analytic work. And that's real cognitive diversity, right? Um, by the way, the other way you can do cognitive diversity in some ways, at least, is different models, right? Because everybody in today's corporate world is what Gary Kasparov called a centaur. Centaurs are teams of humans and computers playing chess against other teams of humans and computers, in effect. So you, you as, a, as an institution, so it's not just about, wow, I need different ways of thinking among my workforce. It's I need different models to think about what's risk that's not on that spreadsheet that might show up in another form, in another model, and maybe not even on the spreadsheet. So, so there's that issue. But then, I certainly find when you're working in a place like, well, certainly in business, good business schools, 
make you do lots of group work with people from all over the world. And the one thing they don't do is let you pick your own teams. When uh, I found that one of the most helpful things about going to international business school and teaching in an international business school is if you say, okay, here's a group assignment and you can form yourself into groups, guess what? All the Japanese people are gonna go work together because that's easiest to get the project done. Whereas my study group at LBS had an Indonesian software designer, Pakistani pharmacologist, me the former Marine, a Swiss PhD in physics and a German petroleum engineer. And frankly, we almost killed each other uh, trying to get assignments done. But Nat, in the course of a year, I learned two things. A, there is strength in diversity. And B, you can, like super forecasting, you can learn to get better at that and uh, understand the strengths that people bring. But it, it, it's, you guys work in an industry and in a city that brings some of that just because that's what floats to the top in London. But um, I, Juan raised the point about Warren Buffett and super forecasting, however, What's amazing is on one level, obviously, Berkshire Hathaway does not practice this model, except he's not on Wall Street. He keeps a structural distance from the industry. And, and again, so it, it, at times you can structure your environment in a way that at least accounts for the sorts of possible sources of deep bias that I'm talking about. So I have you ever come across a book called War and Chance Assessing Uncertainty in International Politics? Um, <laughs> I'm old enough to say maybe. <laughs> so so uh, it sounds like the sort of thing I would have come across, but I can't. I, I, I can't turn around behind me. I have bookshelves behind me. I can't turn around and pull it right off and say that's one of my favorites. Um, but shoot, that, that, that won't stop me from, from, um, from responding to questions about it, though. Uh, the, the question is, you, you don't, you wouldn't have, I mean, the question is not meant, you don't, you wouldn't have had to read it to, to answer the, the following question. But so, um, this podcast was born after a first session we had with Annie Duke three years ago. Yes. Uh, she released her first book, Thinking in Bets, and we thought that a lot of her ideas and the way that she was talking about decision-making and thinking in probabilities had a lot of applications on what we do in our day-to-day -day jobs, and it was extremely powerful. And so... Uh, we then had the opportunity of talking to her again. And th this is a question that I brought up during that specific conversation, which is something that we have touched upon on this podcast with Michael Mabusin and with her and some of the other guests that we've had. And given your experience in, in looking at geopolitics and, and in the context of your book, I thought that it would be interesting to, to approach it again. So this is what happened. So in, in that specific book, they, they talk about two anecdotes. One taking place in 1961 during the uh, President Kennedy Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, which was had a pretty poor outcome. 
And then the other one, uh, except, except from the Cuban point of view, but uh, yeah, from, from our point true, of view, true, that's very true. Yeah, that's very true. Thank you for making that clarification. Yes, yes, sorry. Uh, but, but, but believe me, I'm on your side on that one. I'm, I'm just saying, where no, no, you stand, no, no. where you sit. By the way, there are always two sides to every coin, and one tends to play it, or one tends to forget uh, the other's view. Um, yeah, there are two so, sides to every coin, and in Latin America in the 80s, one of them was communist. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, the other anecdote refer, refers to something that happened almost 50 years after that in 2011 when President Obama was trying to decide whether or not to uh, attack the uh, Abbottabad compound in Pakistan. So, so what happened was the following. In 1961, um, the president's joint chiefs of staff Stop. Submitted a report before the operation that detailed the operation's strengths and weaknesses, and concluded that I, I open quotes: "This plan has a fair chance of ultimate success." And after the mission's failure, looking back at the report, it was never clear to anyone what the statement "fair chance" actually meant. Um, so, for instance, what was the numerical probability attached to that specific success? And then if you fast forward in time to 2011, you have President Obama uh, asking his advisors, what was the actual probability of Osama bin Laden being in the compound? And he went, apparently he was sitting in a room and he went uh, around the table and he got a, a very wide range of responses. So for some people, the probability of success or the probability that he was actually going to be in the compound was 90%, but for all other people was as low as 30%. So President Obama stated afterwards that that exercise had provided, and I open quotes, no more certainty, but more confusion. And so in the first case, you have people advising on a course of action using words that have no numerical value, and can be very ambiguous. And that's something that Michael Mabusin, and I think Annie Duke have said in the past, you should try to avoid as much as possible framing things in terms of uh, most likely or uh, fair chance, because that might mean very different things to very different people. So, so for some people, most likely could be as high as 90%, but for some other, it might be just a 50% chance. But on the other side of the coin, when President Obama was doing the exact opposite, the wide range of outcomes was so wide that he couldn't make a decision based on the numbers that he was being given. So yeah. um, theory would tell you that President Obama's course of action was the correct one. And here's the question, is that true? And what is the best practice when analysts are going through different scenarios in international political analysis? Okay, couple of things there. I'll try to order my thoughts. The debate about what you might mean by a fair chance or could or might or possibly or a real possibility, all that actually was first addressed by really the father of analysis at CIA, a man named Sherman Kent, who started as a Yale historian, but then joined the Office of Strategic Services and went on to found the analytic wing of uh, the CIA. 
he recognized that. I believe it was after a early 50s estimate about something about Yugoslavia, went around to his analysts and realized that, wow, people, you know, the, the term might ranged from 6% chance or a 9% chance to a 75%. So they actually have developed, uh, and if you, if you look at uh, any major uh, CIA estimate or American intelligence community estimate today, and there's even a handbook uh, for intelligence consumers that tells you what these words mean, there, there is a chart that shows you when we say likely, here are the numerical odds we mean. And that seems a little bit, frankly, anal and cumbersome, but as an experienced intelligence consumer, you then begin to pick up when they say, um, Putin is likely to invade Ukraine. When that changes to Putin is very likely to invade Ukraine, you know that that's actually a higher percentage Assigned. In, in other words, Sherman Kent said he didn't mind his analysts starting to talk like bookies, right? Assign odds. I worry about that though sometimes because there's a sort of vocabulary of false precision. And I know in the super forecasting book, for example, and I didn't want this podcast to be all about super forecasting, but one of the things that super forecasting looks at is these are people who probably make degrees of probability down to about the 5% level. Something has moved from a 60% chance of being likely to a 65% chance of likely. Mm -hmm. Now, you can either, as an organization, come up with your own chart for what each descriptive adjective means. And a great way to do that would be just steal the intelligence community's version. But again, that requires an informed consumer. So maybe numbers aren't the worst thing to use. I don't think that's bad. Um, but let's go to your point about Obama's situation. Because there, there's very clear evidence about what is the rational thing to do. If you go around the table and ask, Juan, what are the odds of Putin invading Ukraine? Emily, what are the odds of Putin invading Ukraine? And let's say you go around and you ask five people and they give you 60%, 60%, 80%, 40%, 100%. Is that five? I think so. What, what do you do with that? What does that mean? How should you approach that? And the, the evidence on this in the social sciences are clear. Um, if these people all, one, draw on the same sources of information in intelligence world, the same ints, and two, um, worked together to arrive at their individual estimates, but worked in a group, Obama's right. You get no value from that whatsoever. And, and you know, you could say, well, maybe you should average them or whatever, or, or do a median. That doesn't help you. But there is this idea of consilience. And consilience is this notion that if different people drawing on different bodies of knowledge or information 
all arrive clustered around a certain answer, I say yes, he's there, or yes, he'll invade, then you can't assign a number to it, but the number's probably greater than any given estimate they've given. So again, how do you structure your analytic teams? You want people working together, and you should all be using the same sources of information sometimes. But if you have a deeply hard problem, an uncertain problem, you want to be on the one hand drawing from a, uh, one person looks at credit analysis, another person looks at the analysis of uh, CEO statements to, to the press. Uh, and if they all come down on one side or the other, then the odds, you can't say exactly what the odds are, but they're, they're, you should overweight the fact that everybody arrived roughly on one side of the issue. Uh, there's a wonderful scene in the movie Zero Dark Thirty where uh, James Gandolfo, who's playing Leon Panetta, goes around the table and asks, what are the odds of, he says, I'm about to go with the president in the eye and I got to give an estimate. What are the odds of uh, bin Laden being there? And of course, in the movie, what's highlighted is the heroine is 100% uh, he's there, but certainty freaks you guys out. So I'll say 95%. But I use that clip in my classes because Actually, when they go around the table, one guy says, well, it's 60%. It's, it's their operational security that convinces me. And somebody else says, I'm at 62. I've looked at their uh, signals intercept, and I'm pretty sure he's there. And somebody else says something similar, drawing on a different body of intelligence. If a diverse group not working together, drawing different sources of information comes down on one side, you can't assign a number, but you can take that as a pretty good, sure thing. And if you wanna know more about this, just Google ideas around consilience and uh, you'll find a guide, so to speak. It's really interesting, really powerful. I, I would say the only thing that I, I would add um, to, to, to everything that you've said is that sometimes people believe there is this feeling that when you're, you're talking probabilities in order for you to make a decision, the moves or your assessment of the probability needs to be very high. But like you were just saying before, super forecasters actually move with very small numbers. So they the tend to work in increments of about 5%. This goes from a 60% chance to a 65% chance. But then the point and of course, that's all Bayesian reasoning. And yeah. the intelligence community spends a lot of time on Bayesian reasoning, and so does machine learning. So one of the things I teach in intelligence tools for the finance professional, in fact, we do we look at uh, we look for weapons of mass destruction in a city uh, in a country called Sanseri, uh, island nation, quite diverse. It's right between Helvetica and Garamond. Okay, so you can't name you can't name real countries. So we do we do fonts. But the point is, I teach Bayesian reasoning. And so as intelligence flows in, you have to start updating the probability that this country does or does not have weapons of mass destruction. And if your listeners want to learn how to do that in a structured way, the name of the CIA technique is called, um, quite rightly, 
analysis of competing hypotheses. And if you Google uh, the psychology of intelligence analysis, it's a CIA manual long since declassified and available for free on the web, although you can happily pay for it on Amazon if you're not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But chapter eight will walk you through how to conduct in a structured way using applied Bayesian reasoning uh, an analysis of competing hypotheses. And that can be about can we or can we not make money in China in the next three years? Uh, and uh, it, you know, you you can you can you can structure the hypothesis however you want. And in fact, Richard Schuer, who wrote the book, spends a lot of time on the idea that the refining of exactly what question you're actually trying to answer is as important as the search for evidence for and against any given hypothesis. And oh, by the way, because the framework was originally designed to penetrate deception, the framework also demands that you take seriously instances where you don't find evidence for something. You, you ask yourself, what would I, if, if hypothesis A is true, what else would I expect to see? And do I see it? I'll give you an example from intelligence history. When the British were doing their best to convince the Nazis that they were going to invade Pas de Calais and the D-Day landings at Normandy were just a fake. They needed extra troops, right? Well, those extra troops were supposedly this fake army in Scotland. And there was, there was no army in Scotland. But the British said to themselves, what would the Germans expect to see if there were a big body of troops in Scotland? And will they see it? And they went to the trouble of placing in the six months prior to the invasion, they went to the trouble of placing hundreds of false marriage announcements in local papers in Northern Britain, Scotland and Northern England. Because if you've got a bunch of troops up there waiting around, nature takes its course. And the Germans, if, they, they're, if they're looking, what would we expect to see if there's a big army in Northern England? You'd expect to see marriage announcements. And we, they, they tried to anticipate what people would expect to see and they fed it to them. So analysis of competing hypotheses is useful for penetrating deception, making decisions, and also, frankly, designing deception. Very interesting. We've got one last question before we go on to our signature ones. And this one is a bit self-serving because you mentioned it in our, our first call. And it, it absolutely latched on to me uh, and we found it really thought provoking, but essentially you said that value investing, I said, this is self-serving, we're going back to, to our, our favorite style, sure, sure. Um, was invested, was invented by Americans and it works very well in Anglo-American countries, which I think has articulated a, a hunch I've had for a couple of years. Um, and with value investing, maybe the understanding and the faith and the execution of this style as a strategy would have been completely different if it had been invented in a country that wasn't the victor of two world wars. And we've never had had to deal with colonization uh, for 400 years, which is by the by. And we've always had a, a large monetary stabilization 
it's it's so coming from the power and privilege position. Um, could you mean or explain a little bit further about why you meant that that phrase? Sure. It's actually not even. We don't even need to go into to monetary theory or anything like that. Um, I mean, we value investing in in Britain and the United States arguably works because we have had a stable, relatively stable constitutional order with the occasional civil war thrown in. And by the way, how would value investing have worked in the American South if you'd bought and held plantations in 1850, right? So value investing is very much, it pays to be on the winning side. If you bought and held almost anywhere in Europe in 1900, besides the UK, the odds of you finishing with something to leave your grandparent children was very low. And that doesn't mean you can't apply the thinking of value investing all around the world. But it does demand that, as I say, you take geopolitical risk seriously and you can't just cut and paste and say, oh, look, I can distinguish price, cost, and value. I'm going to go do that in China and I'll be the next Warren Buffett because 50 years from now, you know, it'll look just like America. Uh, I always ask my students in a country, what does it actually mean to own something? My family uh, lives on the same property in Wisconsin that the first Milo Jones trekked out to in the 1830s. Um, and I was talking to my, my Polish wife and she pointed out, really? Because my grandparents in Poland lost everything three times. <laughs> so uh, there are some big structural things that make you say, oh, I can just buy a great business and, and uh, keep it and, and all will be well. There are structural things. And uh, the, the mindset day to day of looking for strong balance sheets that that have a moat and um, productive assets with rational capital allocation, all that works, but it only works in geopolitically uh, stable environments. And I fear, for reasons we don't have time to talk about, that I personally am of the school of thought that believes that because of digital technology, among other things, we're entering a period of, uh, of disorder and the, the current disorder is extremely durable. So, so think durable disorder. How well will value principles or how do you maintain and best apply in the right places value principles in an age of durable disorder? You mentioned Annie Duke. What does she say the most important decision a poker player makes is. Oof, no, I don't. I don't remember. She says the most important decision a poker player makes is what table do you decide to sit at. Yeah. Okay, so I would suggest as value investors, that layer sometimes gets lost. You just do a straight. Frankly, you do a straight fish market theory. I don't know. Here's the world's economy. Here's percentages of GDP. I'll apply value principles across in equal proportion to the percentage of the world's GDP and all will be well. 
And I'm suggesting that a layer that asks how durable in a world of durable disorder will be my ability to own this investment and, and monetize ultimately this investment. How durable will it be? Um, do, do I own something there? So Would Myanmar I might be very attractive from a price standpoint, but my ability to sit in London or sit in New York or sit in Warsaw and actually own something in Myanmar is probably pretty limited. I'm taking an extreme example. The point is, recognize the civilizational Anglo-Saxon bias uh, and the historical period bias that comes with value approaches. But wouldn't wouldn't the um, a pushback to that be that it's not that it applies to buy investing, but investing regardless of the philosophy or your investment style. Um, it, it applies to all sorts of investing, not, not only. Well, to it does. It, it does, except for the fact that there are momentum investors who are perfectly happy to say, uh, I'm just riding the trend. I don't care about the long term prospects of China. Or there are other people who say, look, I believe the Japanese central bank will be doing the following and therefore I'll do the yen carry trade and it'll sooner or later blow up. But in the meantime, I'll make money. And, and that's, I mean, there are speculators who really don't, who aren't interested in long-term ownership of productive assets. They're, they're gambling. And uh, I guess in that sense, the Annie Duke um, example breaks down because of course she's gambling. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, paradox lies at the heart of all things, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Milo, we're coming to an end of our session today, and we always ask our guests two questions. The first is a book recommendation, and you are more than welcome to recommend your book or give us more than one book recommendation. And the second question is an example of a bad outcome where you can identify the result as a function of bad process and not bad luck. Okay, let me make sure I get the title exactly right. I'm going to walk over and get the book, excuse me. My book recommendation is Rebel Ideas, The Power of Diverse Thinking by Matthew Saeed. Um, it's not, I don't recommend my book. Matthew Saeed interviewed, read my book, poor thing, and my book is Dry as Burnt Toast. But Matthew Saeed spends the first chapter summarizing far better than I ever could and, and enhancing the basic ideas that lay behind my PhD and lay, lay behind the book. And Rebel Ideas, The Power of Diverse Thinking by Matthew Saeed is worth your time because it's not only about my ideas, but there are a bunch of other chapters that explore a lot of interesting topics that apply to life and investing and um, being a smarter person. Your second question was a bad outcome that resulted from a bad decision, not a bad process. A bad process. Not a bad decision. Not, 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 not bad luck. Not bad luck. 
Well, let me be a jerk. Go for it. <laughs> I, I'm a great, but there's a Roman expression, a Roman saying, a Roman truism. Your character is your faith. And I find there are a lot more bad decisions that come from a lack of emotional control or poor character than come from bad processes or bad luck. And so I uh, spent a lot of time, because it doesn't come naturally to me, um, reading Stoicism and the Stoics and trying to uh, not remove emotion, but at least master it and tame it and make sure that my emotions are the servants of me, not me the servants of my emotions. And uh, I did that because I still to this day remember an occasion in the Marine Corps when it was a Friday night, we were already late. I was leading a company on a hike and I had three out of the four platoons I was leading with me and one went missing. And when the guy finally showed up, I did something completely unforgivable. I lost my temper at the sergeant leading that platoon in front of the recruits. And if there's one iron law in my book, it's praise in public and criticize in private. And I lost my temper. And then I went away and hated myself for a few hours. And what, how did I correct that? I corrected that by assembling the entire, again, we're already late and it's Friday night, but I assembled the entire company to hear me publicly apologize to that sergeant and explain that the essence of leadership by example and the essence of good leadership is you don't criticize a subordinate in front of their subordinates. That experience, I find still so hauntingly shameful, losing my temper like that. I really work now and have worked for many years, decades, uh, sometimes unsuccessfully, to control my temper because bad decisions can come from character flaws a lot more than they'll come from a less than ideal process or bad luck. One final footnote, there's an old book in the 70s. You bring up luck and you brought up Annie Duke, so I gotta say it. There's another book recommendation. There's an old book from the 70s called, jokingly, How to Get Lucky. It's not dating advice. It actually takes you through some very practical things. You as a person, a manager, uh, uh, a, a financier, things you can do in your life to put you in the path of luck. In a quite systematic way, some people are luckier than others. Why and how? And it tries to, tries to walk you through, are you doing things to make luck possible? So I recommend how to get lucky as well. And that's my pushback on bad decisions too. So the best decision you can make is get lucky. Milo Jones, thank you very much for your time on the Bad Perspective podcast. It was a pleasure having you here. Juan, Emily, I hope some of what I've said is useful, both to you and to your clients and uh, anyone who listens. So thank you.
Thank you.